Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Salt to Salt. Hope everybody is well and is uh, is healthy and strong on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in the spring in Johannesburg. And uh, I, I would like to discuss with you that which is, I think, is on everybody's mind and uh, in the lips of so many people. Um, the current situation that we see going on in the Middle East. Um, as Jews, it's been a very frightening. Um, period these last 10 days in which we've firstly seen a massacre on the scale of uh, Eastern European pogroms and Western European and the, and the Holocaust. Since the Holocaust, we haven't had a day like this within the Jewish people, certainly in my lifetime. And of course, um, it makes us frightened. It makes us uncertain. It makes us um, upset and saddened. And uh, really goes to the core of our being, seeing these terrible atrocities and the stories that are coming out every day as to the massacre of Hamas terrorists um, in southern Israel last Saturday. Um, also, equal, very distressing too for us is to see the response of the world, to see how the mainstream media outlets take up the narrative of the Palestinians. And uh, without much insight and understanding into what really is going on in the Middle East, what the facts are, and of course to see on uh, in, in ma major cities around the world, uh, on campuses throughout the world, how strong the anti-Israel sentiment is and how strong the anti-Semitism is, how little uh, compassion there is for these brutal acts of barbarism that we've seen, and how these terrorists and their barbaric actions are justified around the world. So um, I think this needs some discussion. And what is very important, and certainly it's also worth mentioning that the South African government's um, siding very openly and very vocally with the Palestinians and uh, with these barbaric actions of these terrorists. So let's try and talk a little bit about the facts that are going on um, in the Middle East and get a little bit of the history, a little bit of a broader perspective. Um, I think the, the problem here is that um, most of the liberal Western world uh, very quickly takes up the cause of a perceived underdog. And when it's framed in a narrative that you have a colonial um, oppressive power that is causing the suffering and the um, and the uh, taking advantage of a vulnerable innocent population when it's framed in those terms so uh, the liberal western mind very quickly takes up the cause of the underdog and wants to fight for freedom and justice and that's not a bad thing that's a good thing that um, we should fight for the protection and for the safety and for the basic human rights of every human being in this world that, that is a good thing, and there's something that should be supported. But I think that the facts in the Middle East are very distorted, 
and to frame the situation within those terms is not accurate. That is the way the Arab world and the Palestinians try and present the situation, but that's not really the truth on the ground. So I want to try and share with you some facts which display that, which show that understanding it within that kind of perspective is not fair and is not based on reality and is actually a false understanding of the situation. So let's look at the first claim that is made, and that is that Israel is on Palestinian land that the a declaration of the State of Israel was actually stealing territory from the Muslim world. Let's look at that claim. Um, and it's very simple and clear to see that that is false, that that's not accurate, because um, Israel is, in fact, very much Jewish territory and has been that way for 3,300 years, um, according to the Bible, which in fact all Christians and Muslims and Jews follow. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of archaeological evidence supporting the claims of the Bible. You are sure Joshua entered into the land when he took over after the death of Moshe Rabbeinu in the year 1300 before the Common Era. 1300 BCE was when the Jews entered into the land under Yehoshua. Um, King David then declared quite soon after that, about uh, 300 years after that, in, in the year 1000 before the Common Era, King David declared Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish people. So this is 1000 years before Christianity. This is 1600 years before Islam is born. This is way before London and New York and Sydney. Um, the Jews are in their capital of Jerusalem under the leadership of the king, King David. King Solomon builds the first temple, what we call Bayes Rishon, the first Beis HaMikdash, in the year 957 before the Common Era. The second temple, the, the first temple is then destroyed just over 400 years later uh, by, the, um, by Nebuchadnezzar, by the Babylonians, and the Jews are exiled. Um, well, a large part of the Jewish community are exiled, um, and they then return and rebuild the second temple, Bais Sheni, which is known as the Second Commonwealth, in the year 550 before the Common Era. Now, you know, you can look up all these facts. These are, you can Google them. This is, uh, you know, the historical record of what happened, and the archaeological record uh, uh, supports this very much so. Um, the Jews were then, um, during the Second Commonwealth, were for just over 400 years. So there's a bit of a dis discussion in the historians. Was it 350 years? Was it 400 years? Um, they have the uh, the miracle of Hanukkah, in which the um, the Hashmonaim they defeat the Greeks and they um, they establish the Hash the dynasty of the Hasmonean Hashmonaim. That's from about the year 166 before the Common Era. The Romans then conquer the region. The Roman becomes the Romans become the dominant empire. They defeat the Greeks, and they enter into the land and conquer and occupy the land in the year 63 before the Common Era. And uh, in the year 72, they destroy Baal Shem, the Second Temple. There was a rebellion against Roman rule, 
and the Romans respond very viciously and destroy the second temple in 72 of the common era. And the Jews remained for over for uh, another 60 years um, under Roman rule. And then they have a rebellion called the Bar Kokhba revolt in the year 136 um, of the common era. And after the, the Bar Kokhba revolt um, resulted in the Jews um, pushing out the Romans for a number three or four years, the Jews actually had independence. Um, but then the Romans came back with a vengeance and exiled the Jews in the year 136 before the Common Era. Um, the Romans then decide to name the area Palestine as an insult to the Jews after the ancient Jewish enemies, the, Palest the Philistines, who were no longer around. The Philistines were no longer existed, but that's why the Romans named the, the region Palestine after they exiled the Jews. Now, the, when they exiled, that means most of the Jews were exiled, but there were still, of course, Jews there. There have always been, since the entering into the land of 1300 before the common era, there have always been Jews in the land of Israel. Um, and uh, then we see that Islam is only founded in the 7th century of the common era. So Islam is only founded quite late, if we look back at this history. And there's never been an independent Arab state um, in this area, in the area of Palestine. So we see very clearly that this is Jewish land. Jews have been there for 3,300 years. And it is the, if any uh, people has a claim to any land in the world, it is certainly the Jews that have been in the region for more than three centuries. Okay, so that's a very important point and a very important myth to, uh, to debunk um, that certainly Israel is Jewish land. Secondly, um, we see very commonly, uh, well, actually, we're going to go to an ad break, so please stay with us. We'll come back with the second important fact um, in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. And it's so important for us to fact-check many of these stories, which are uh, proven, very often proven to be false. As we just seen this morning, there was a, a, a claim by Hamas that Israel um, uh, bombed a hospital in which 500 Palestinian children were killed. And the facts actually turn out to be that that was a missile that um, went wrong, that was fired by Islamic Jihad. And it actually landed in Gaza. And they say about 30% of the missiles that are fired at Israel from Gaza and do not reach their targets. And about 30% of them actually uh, land in Gaza itself. And did not, this missile did not actually hit a hospital, but hit a parking lot next to the hospital. The hospital, uh, the hospital buildings and walls are fully intact. And uh, so the story was completely false. Um, as are many of the claims and many of the reports that are coming directly from the Palestinians and that are taken up by the media and are very quickly and willingly um, peddled to the world um, and uh, most of them are false. So it's very important that we know the truth, that we understand the history, we understand what the background is to the conf conflict in the Middle East and that we uh, 
confidently stand up to the justice of our cause as Jews and on behalf of Israel. So the first myth that we have uh, debunked is that the land was Muslim land. That is absolutely false. The land was 100% Jewish land, and Jews have been in the land of Israel for more than 3,000 years. The second myth that I want to um, emphasize, that I want to look at, that I want to explode, blow up over here, is the fact that the failure of land partition is as a result of Israel. Um, and that, again, is completely false that the Israel has refused a two-state solution, that Israel will not negotiate and compromise with the Palestinians, that Israel is not interested in peace. That is absolutely false. So let's look at the history again. We see in 1917, the British promised the Jewish people um, a homeland in Palestine. And um, that was what's called the Balfour Declaration. In 1920, uh, Arab population that was in Israel protested and there were pogroms in which they attacked Jews, murdered many Jews in Jerusalem. And as a result, the response to that in 1922, Britain announced that they this land that they promised the Jews in 1917, which included what is Jordan today and Israel today, that 70% of that land they would turn into an independent Arab state, which would which is today Jordan. Um, and most of uh, the the uh, the area that they originally promised to the Jews would go to this Arab state, which was what is today Jordan. In 1937, the Peel Commission um, recommends that the territory in the Middle East should be split between the Jews and the Arabs. Um, the Arabs would get most of the of that territory that remains, and the Jews would get a very small portion in the north, and including Tel Aviv. Um, in 1939, again bowing to Arab pressure, the British restricted Jewish immigration to the land of Israel to 75,000 Jews a year. And remember, this is just before the Holocaust. And there are millions of Jews trying to escape Europe, trying to escape the Nazis. And the British uh, denied them entry into the land, um, saying only 75,000 years. The, the Second World War breaks out. The Arabs side with the Nazis. Khaj Amin al-Husseini meets with Hitler and asks Hitler to extend his final solution to the Middle East as well, to exterminate every Jew from the Middle East. The Jews side with the British and, in fact, fight with the British. In 1948, um, the United Nations vote that there should be a partition plan in Palestine. Again, most of the territory is given to the Arabs, a small part of it given to the Jews. The Jews accept this proposal very enthusiastically and declare a state under David Ben-Gurion in 1948. The Arabs reject it, uh, outright reject such a proposal, and immediately seven well-trained, well-armed Arab armies attack Israel. Israel is a fledgling state. They've just, you know, been born. They're still in the delivery room, and they're attacked by seven Arab armies Miraculously, Israel fumbles for weapons and for soldiers and a bunch of refugees surviving the uh, concentration camps of Europe defend themselves successfully in a miraculous fashion. And so the state of Israel is born. Um, so that, that state of Israel didn't have the West Bank as a part of it. Didn't have Gaza was part of Egypt. The West Bank was part of Jordan. 
Um, and uh, but Israel nonetheless prevails and tries to develop its uh, newly born state. In 1964, the PLO is formed, and they call for the complete destruction of Israel. Now remember, the territories which we call the West Bank are under Jordanian control. They're not under Israeli control in 1964. And Gaza is under Egyptian control. So Israel's not controlling any of these areas. But nonetheless, the PLO says we will stop at nothing short of destroying um, the the Jews in Israel and of completely destroying Israel. That's 64. 67, we have the Six-Day War. And again, Israel is facing an existential threat. We have uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt mobilizing the Arab world and the Arab armies and armed to the teeth by the Russians, threatening the existence of Israel and claiming that Israel will be completely wiped out. Again, it looks like there's going to be another Holocaust um, just a short while after 19 years after the end of uh, of the of the building of the state, and you know, so 21 years, 22 years after the Holocaust, unbelievable. And Israel again prevails, and with a preemptive strike, which is quite phenomenal, a tremendous military achievement. They push back these Arab armies that have amassed on her borders, and Israel gains territory, gains the Golan Heights, gains the West Bank, gains the Gaza Strip and the Sinai. Again, 1973, six years later, the Arabs uh, mobilize once more and attack Israel again, um, this time on our holiest day of the year on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur war, Godel Meir and the government are taken by surprise, which is a tremendous intelligence blunder on behalf of the Israelis, almost overrun. Uh, but Israel manages to find her feet and push these Arab armies back north and south. Um and east, and they succeed in the Yom Kippur War once again. 1979, Menachem Begin is the Prime Minister, and he makes an agreement with Sadat of Egypt. Gives back the Sinai, gives back the territory that, of the Sinai that was gained in the 67 war in, in exchange for peace with Egypt, and uh, that peace still remains, the Baruch Hashem. So, so, so far up to now, I've, I've thrown in a few other things, but we've seen that there was one uh, uh, offer given for a partition in 1948, which the Arab world completely um, turned down and declared war on Israel. Again, in 1993, there's the Oslo Accords, and that is uh, under Yitzhak Rabin, and that would lead uh, to a step-to-step process in which the Palestinians would have their own independent state. That's 1993. In 1998, Israel um, concedes most of uh, large territories to the Palestinian Authority. This is under Netanyahu, again, in order. So all Israel wants is for the Palestinian people to acknowledge and recognize the state of Israel and to live in harmony and in peace together with the people of Israel and uh in, and there could be cooperation, there could be uh, economic cooperation, there could be um, cooperation in all sorts of, of area areas, and the two uh, states will live side by side in peace and will create a new Middle East in which all the citizens 
will develop and prosper. That's Israel's wish and dream. So, again, 93 is Oslo. And Israel tries to reach an understanding as long as the Palestinians will renounce terror and will recognize Israel. 1998, again, um, a, a, an agreement, an attempted agreement, a negotiation, is, is Israel agrees to concede to many, many things in order to reach a peace and understanding with Palestinians. This is under Netanyahu 98. 2000, um, Prime Minister Barak, um, meets with Arafat again, promises him 91% of the territories um, of the West Bank and Gaza. Um, Arafat, in his own words, turned over the tables of negotiation and went to war. It's not because Israel did anything to upset the Palestinians or to um, create a an escalation of the conflict. It was because of the negotiations. As a result of the negotiations, and what was being offered, Arafat, in his words, turned over the tables and went out to war. Um, there was an intifada. There were thousands of Israelis that were killed through terrorism. Um, that's 2000. 2005, Israel unilaterally gives back Gaza to the Palestinians without any conditions, without anything in return. Because Israel doesn't want to have to administer and control areas uh, where there is a large Palestinian population. There's no interest for Israel. Israel d- doesn't need it or want it. Israel wants the Palestinians to live in a prosperous, peaceful environment and state. And so in 2005, they give Gaza back to the Palestinians. Um, immediately, they burn all the, 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 there were some Jewish settlements in those areas. They burnt all the settlements. They burnt all the hothouses, which were very prosperous, which they could have turned into um, very good streams of income. Um, and unfortunately, um, in 2007, they vote in Hamas as the government uh, to take control of Gaza. And as we know, in Hamas, which is founded in 1987, it very openly, you can look it up online, in their founding documents, the Charter of Hamas says that they will not stop until they've liberated Palestine from the infidels, until they've killed the Jews until they have, they have defeated the Jews, killed the Jews. That's what they say openly. So they don't want peace. They don't want prosperity. They don't want to improve the lives of their civilians. They want to remove the Jews from Israel, the, from our ancient homeland. They're very open about that, and that is their goal. So that's 2007. 2008, Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, after Gaza has been given back, he, he, he offers Mahmoud Abbas. Abbas has taken over the Palestinian leadership, because Arafat dies in 2004, and he even offers more than Barak offered. Barak offered almost everything, right? He offers even more than the 91% that, uh, that El Barak offers, and um, even offers that the old city would be controlled by a trusteeship of Israel, the Palestinian Authority of, of Saudi Arabia. Abbas walks away from the negotiation table, with, even without a counteroffer. So we see there's five times, 1948, 1993, 1998, 2000, 2008, that the Israelis have tried to meet the Palestinians in negotiations, tried to find a compromise, tried to create a two-state solution and and find a way out of this conflict. And every single time without fail, they've been turned down without any counter-offers. It's very obvious and clear that they don't want to reach an agreement with Israel and live together in peace. So that's the second myth that we have busted over here, is that Israel is the cause of there not being a two-state solution, 
and um, that the land is not partitioned. We see five times Israel has has bent over backwards and has given tremendous concessions. In, uh, and that's over and above giving Gaza back. Gaza since 2005 has not uh, – Israel's not in Gaza. Israel, Gaza is completely run by the Palestinians. It's now run by this terrorist organization, Hamas. Um, so we see it's obvious and clear. Israel wants to find a resolution, wants to find a compromise, wants to find a solution and peace. And unfortunately, they have no uh, peace partner on the other side. That's obvious and clear. That's that's what the facts very clearly show us. Okay, that's myth number two. Myth number three is that Israel expelled the Arabs in 1948 and created this refugee problem. Um, Israel declared... In its, in its, uh, in its declaration of independence, Israel very clearly said to the Arab citizens that they should stay, they shouldn't go, and that they should be, um, they should remain in the land. That there's no re- reason for them to run and to leave. I'm, I'm going to quote exactly to you from Israel's declaration, declaration of independence. Uh, it says, so this is written in 1948 by the Israeli government. We appeal in the very midst of the onslaught launched against us now for months to the Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel to preserve peace and participate in the building of the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation in all of its provincial and permanent institutions. So the, we I've seen an interview with David Ben-Gurion. He said we did not want the refugee crisis to be created and we encouraged the Arab uh, people to remain, but most of them left before the the Jews arrived to those areas um, at the command and instruction of the Arab leaders. Arab leaders in the Arab world said, you must leave, the Jews are going to massacre you, and uh, we will look after you, and we will protect you, and then you'll be able, after we defeat the Jews, you'll be able to come back to your homes, and you'll be able to expand your properties. Um, but Israel never wanted there to be a refugee crisis. Um, so in uh, between 250 and 300,000 people left um, at the instruction of their Arab leaders. And uh, Israel said they should return and they would be a part of building the country. And um, they had nothing to fear. The Arab nations refused to take in these refugees. They've, these poor people have been used as political pawns. Um, because once you've got these refugees, you have a crisis in which the world can focus and which they can twist the narrative in order to make it seem like these people are being oppressed and are being taken advantage of by a colonial um, power um, like Israel. But that's not at all the case, as I've been describing. And so these refugees, the refugee crisis, of course, it's there and it has to be dealt with in a compassionate way. But it was not created by Israel. It was not the desire of Israel um, to to create this crisis. Um, tiny Israel took in 800,000 refugees from Arab countries, Jews from Arab countries between 1948 and 1953. Um, but the Arab world wouldn't take in these 300,000 refugees because they've used them as political pawns um, in these refugee camps. So that's myth number three, is Israel did not create the refugee crisis. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. 
The fourth myth that I'd like to address and show that is that it is false also is the accusation we hear all the time um, in the mainstream media that Israel is an apartheid state. Um, that is not true at all. There are Arab citizens that live in Israel. They make up 20% of the Israeli population, and they have full rights in Israel. Um, there are Arab parties in the Knesset. There's an Arab who sits on the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, and the the that claim that Israel is an apartheid state is, is false. It's absolutely false. Um, there are territories in which the, the West Bank, which are controlled by the Palestinian Authority and, uh, and not controlled by Israel, and they rule themselves. And, of course, Gaza there's the, the, is entirely controlled by Hamas. And so to claim Israel is an apartheid state is a false comparison. It's not fair. And, and it's a very uh, manipulative way to describe the situation because especially us as South Africans who live through apartheid, we saw what apartheid looks like. So it's easy to throw around that accusation and say, well, Israel's perpetrating the same sins as the apartheid regime in South Africa. But it's not a fair comparison. It's not an equal comparison because Israel very much wants to make peace. And as I described to you, there's been five times where Israel's made tremendous concessions as well as giving back the Sinai, as well as giving Gaza over to, to, to the Arabs. So there's been seven clear attempts and efforts on Israel's part in good faith to find a resolution, um, but unfortunately, there's no desire on the other side to make peace. And so that brings me to the final point I'd like to make, and that is why not? Why not? Why, instead of receiving millions of dollars in aid, does Hamas use that money to buy weapons and missiles in order to attack Israel? Um, why do they take the pipes that were given to them for sewerage to improve the infra infrastructure of the people in Gaza? Um, they use them for rockets. Why do they take the cement that they could use to build schools and to build hospitals and they use that for terror tunnels? Why is that so? And why are they very well supported? They were voted in by the Palestinian people. They were voted they, Since they were voted in 2007, there hasn't been an election. Um, because they are a brutal dictatorship. Um, why is that the case? Israel is accused of, of targeting civilians. God forbid. God forbid. Israel is a peace-loving people. The Jewish people are peace-loving people. Um, but Hamas use their civilians as human shields. As we see right now, Israel is telling the people of Gaza to leave, to evacuate, to not remain there because their forces are going to be entering in and, uh, and trying to weed out and destroy Hamas. Hamas tell their people to stay. There are many cases where Hamas remove the ability of people. They confiscate car keys. They tell the people not to move to stay. They shoot, they fire rockets onto, into civilian centers in Israel from the city of Gaza where there are civilians, from the, from, um, schools, from hospitals, from from civilian centers. Nobody else in the world would do that, using their civilians as human shields, because they know that Israel will retaliate and Israel will try and take out those rocket launching stations. And as a result, there will be civilian casualties. And then they present that to the world. Look what Israel does. Look how our people are suffering at the hands of these cruel and brutal Israelis. But they're hardly behind their civilians. Um, not only that, but they obviously 
attack our civilians. The, the, the attack last Saturday in which they infiltrated southern Israel, 1,500 Hamas terrorists, not fighters, that the despicable CNN and BBC call them. They're not fighters. These people are terrorists, and they are attacking innocent civilians, and they are beheading babies and burning families alive inside their homes, murdering over 1,300 people, taking 200 people, 250 civilians hostage into Gaza. These people are barbarians. It's the, the atrocities are unspeakable, and they're defended by the mainstream media in the West. But why is that so? Why is that the case? Why do they not want to improve the lives of their civilians, build a, their own cities and their own economies and their own country side by side Israel, making an, a, a, a peace a tr- treaty with Israel? Why don't they? It doesn't make sense, does it? Seven attempts to reach peace, all rejected. And constantly turning back to terror and to war. Why? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, the truth is it makes a lot of sense. Because their goal is not to build prosperous, peaceful communities and societies. The goal of Hamas, as they clearly say, (laughs) I'm not making this up, this is what it says in their charter. Their goal is to destroy the Jews in Israel, to wipe out Israel. Why is that? Because this is not a territorial conflict. If it was, they would have made peace long ago. Because they have their territory. But they cannot rest. They cannot stop. As long as there are Jews in the land of Israel. And that is a, it's coming from a religious place. Not from a political place. Not because of a aspiration to gain more territory. It's because it is a religious war going on in the Middle East. And that's why all of the facts that I've given you, which to our to logical, uh, clear thinking individual do not make any sense. Well, when you see the religious part of it, then one understands what's going on. And Hamas won't stop. And Islamic Jihad won't stop. And the Palestinian Authority won't stop until they've killed every Jew in Israel. And they've liberated the, all of that territory um, from the Jews. And that is a basic tenet in Islam. You can study Islam and um, see that within Islam there is a desire to conquer the world. Um, world domination is one of the tenets of Islam. And certainly a land that has been controlled by Muslims, which although it wasn't an independent Palestinian state, it was controlled by the Ottoman Empire, which, by the way, the land was completely desolate. Nothing was happening. It was, uh, we have many uh, eyewitness accounts, most famously Mark Twain, who in 1869 went to visit and saw that, you know, he said it's a complete barren wasteland. Um, but since it was at that time under Muslim control, the Jews were exiled. The Jews, so in other words, the Muslims were the colonialists that chased out the indigenous people, the Jews. Um, but as long as Israel remains under Jewish control, so the Muslim world won't make peace with it, won't come to terms with it. And so the more fundamentalist um, the followers are of Islam, the more vicious are their attacks on Israel and the more they, they uh, focus all of their ability and resources to destroy Israel. So that's what's going on over here. And the understanding of the West that it's simply a, uh, 
pursuit for independence is false, is not accurate. As the facts that I've shared with you very clearly show, that's not at all what um, the reality is. And it's a different kind of war going on. It's not a, it's not just a, a territorial um, battle, but rather it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual war. And uh, therefore, the general Western mind finds it difficult to understand and very easily fits, falls into that trap of um, seeing it as a colonial power oppressing an innocent population. That's not at all the case. And uh, Israel tomorrow, I, I mean, the one line really says it all. That what would happen if the Palestinians put down their arms, there would be peace the next day. What would happen if Israel put down her arms? Every June, Israel would be massacred the next day, as we saw last Saturday. So that really says it all. That sums it up. And uh, and therefore, it's important that people understand the facts and understand what's really going on and don't fall into these slogans that are a misrepresentation and are inaccurate as to the situation. Please say, well, so we'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We'll end off with a spiritual perspective and understanding. Um, so as we've been saying, the, the Jewish cause is just and Israel's cause is, is very justified and is fair and is very, is moral. In fact, the Israeli army is the most moral army in the world. They warn civilians to get out of areas that they're about to attack. Um, Hamas certainly didn't warn any of, of the Jewish civilians in the south that they were planning an attack. Um, and so we see that the Jewish people are, as I mentioned earlier, peace-loving people. The Gemara says that we b'nei rachmanim, b'nei goimei chasadim. We're compassionate people. We're people who are involved in acts of kindness. But when we are, when our very existence is threatened, and when our uh, ability to remain in our homeland is threatened, so we have no choice but to fight. And we're certainly entitled to do so. We're certainly entitled to defend ourselves defend ourselves against uh, aggressors and against terrorists. And Israel has no choice right now other than destroying Hamas completely, uh, finishing Hamas and removing their ability to attack and threaten and and uh, massacre our citizens as they have done. And so um, Israel is perfectly justified in doing that. And the, the Jewish religious leaders don't uh, say, you know, this is a holy war and we have to destroy every Muslim. And, you know, we, that's not our worldview. Unlike the Muslim clerics that say it's a holy jihad and go attack every Jew and it's your spiritual, um, your spiritual mission and you you'll earn your next world by uh, killing the Jews, by massacring the Jews, by cutting off babies' heads. Um, we we see the world very differently. That's not how um, the Jewish people understand, and uh, that's not how we live. Um, but we are certainly entitled to defend ourselves. There's no question about it. And what's very important is that we must, as Jews, identify um, with each other, and we are fractious people, unfortunately, and uh, there's a lot of divisions in the Jewish people. But when we are attacked and when we are threatened like we are right now, um, we need to come together and we need to unify. And it's been very beautiful to see the Jewish unity 
these last 10 days. And so may it continue. And uh, through our unity comes our strength. Um, there's a famous uh, midrash that tells us about the door of Achab and the door of David and Melech. It's a midrash in Bamidbar Rabba Chavtes. The midrash says that the generation of King David, uh, the people knew a lot of Torah. And they knew very fine, intricate uh, details of halachas about Tum and Tahara. And they went out to war and they lost in the war. And it says the door of Achav, the generation of Achav, who was a king in Israel, um, they were over there for Zorah. They worshipped idols. Spiritually, they were on a very low level. But they went out to war and they were successful in war. And the, uh, the Midrash says, why is that so? The Midrash says, because the door of Achav were united and the door of David and Melech were not united. There was Machlaikas. When the Jewish people are united, so we get Siatat, the Shmaya, with help from heaven, and we are able to defend ourselves, and we are able to defeat our enemies. So please God, we should see Jewish unity, and we should see success for the Jewish people, and we should see safety and peace in the land of Israel, and we should see the coming of Mashiach, Bimhera, Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.